1: You're it's listening so
0: too. A time <laughs> to <do> <laughs> <things>. <laughs> A Mamma Mia podcast From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily Since parts of the country started to reopen only to those who are fully vaccinated there's already been some ugly scenes at retail and hospitality venues Excuse me, what makes you think that I'm going to hand over my medical private information of whether I'm vaccinated or not vaccinated? to buy a cup of coffee under this discrimination and this putrid attempt to segregate. While the community seems divided by the vaxxed versus unvaxxed debate, just how much of the population is actually unvaccinated? And what danger do they pose to the community if they were just allowed to ease out of restrictions or simply ignore the rules? Today, we look at the potential impact of unvaccinated Aussies and whether the voices of those vaccine critics are just louder or whether there's more anti-vaccine sentiment and hesitancy than we realised. MOVE by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. It's a conversation many Aussies are having with each other around the country right now. Why is that person in your friendship circle, family or workplace deciding not to get vaccinated? Why are they choosing to stay at home rather than enjoy the freedoms vaccinated people are getting as some states emerge from lockdown? Don't they want to travel again? Don't they want to keep their jobs? What will they do once borders start to reopen? Don't they know that it's dangerous for them and anyone around them who are vulnerable? So what would actually happen if we allowed vaccinated people to walk freely amongst the vaccinated in Australia right now? What are the impacts of their choices? Professor Mary Louise McClaws is an epidemiologist with expertise in hospital infection and infectious diseases control based at the University of New South Wales. Professor, if it's a person's choice not to be vaccinated, why shouldn't they be allowed to take the risk of catching COVID themselves out in the community where there are active cases? What's the worst that could happen here?
2: An unvaccinated person poses a risk to themselves, but also to the general community and particularly the elderly and of course the medically vulnerable who haven't been able to elicit a really good response to the vaccine. Because remember, the vaccine really protects against death, severe infection and hospitalisation, but doesn't completely protect against acquiring infection. And for those who are vulnerable and elderly... They may acquire infection from an unvaccinated person and they could die. Also, the unvaccinated pose an enormous risk around the duty of care of an employer. Because while the employer may be able to find a way around allowing the person to come to work to be protected from spreading infection at the workplace by testing them with a rapid antigen test every day before they enter the workplace the unvaccinated employee could actually acquire infection from vaccinated staff because vaccinated staff may have a silent or very, very mild infection because they're vaccinated and pass it on to the unvaccinated. And that unvaccinated person has an unpredictable response to COVID and could be mild or could be severe, could be hospitalized and could die.
0: What's the difference between a vaccinated and an unvaccinated person contracting COVID and then passing it on? You say it'll be milder, but what does that actually mean?
2: When we look at vaccine efficacy, it's about what was observed in phase three trials for the group that were vaccinated compared to the group that weren't. And for symptomatic infection, for the group that were vaccinated, that vaccine efficacy reached 88% protection against infection. However, with Delta, sadly, that's been reduced in some countries to about 79%. Now, in real world observations, and that's called vaccine effectiveness, that could be higher, but we don't really know yet. So we need to adjust our thinking to think, well, we will be protected against hospitalisation at about 96% reduction and death as well. So that's fantastic. But vaccinated people with Pfizer and AstraZeneca can still acquire silent infection or symptomatic infection that's very mild and still pass it on. However, at a lower level, from um, some of the research that's been identified, say, for example, in an outbreak in Singapore, they were found to have a lower level of virus, viral load, and therefore potentially a lower risk of spreading it to others. But we don't don't know exactly that level of reduction of spreading it to others in the real world setting.
0: What about the impact on hospitals? We keep hearing the sentence, it's now become the pandemic of the unvaccinated, but we are hearing stories about people who are fully vaccinated who do end up in hospital and who have passed away, Colin Powell, as an example, just passed away, he was double vaccinated. So what impact will it have on hospitals if we were to just kind of throw the doors open and not worry about keeping unvaccinated people at home for the time being? Would that be an unreasonable risk for hospitals right now?
2: Colin Powell is the person that everybody knows. So he's a good example of the fact that you can be vaccinated and your antibody levels, your protection levels drop. So he may have been vaccinated earlier on prior to getting a booster at his elderly age. He may have acquired circulating infection from an unvaccinated person and succumbed to the complications. And that's why it's our duty to get vaccinated to protect the elderly and protect those who should be close to getting a booster shot. But Back to your question about hospitalisation. The group that are at more risk of being hospitalised by their age cohort for those that acquire infection and may get hospitalised, certainly the risk goes up from 20 years of age onward. But while the young are at less risk of dying and at less risk of being hospitalised when they do get sick, Remember, we all have a responsibility of keeping everybody safe.
0: The original stereotype of the anti-vaxxer movement used to be young white women in Byron Bay or the wives and girlfriends of football players. But since COVID-19 became a part of our lives, we've added the vaccine hesitant to anti-vaxxer and conspiracy theorists to the My Body, My Choice movement and far-right ideology to a viewpoint once thought of as one held by nature-loving hippies. Those who oppose vaccines are now grouped in with those who also oppose lockdowns and masks and mandates and science and government and mainstream society. So now that we've heard about the medical dangers of unvaccinated Aussies, what about the ideological dangers? Just recently, those who oppose vaccine mandates in some industries here in Australia falsified a court document to make it seem like their argument was supported by a leading infectious disease expert... Melbourne's RMIT University fact-checked a statement supposedly made by Professor Christine McCartney from the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance in the New South Wales Supreme Court, which claimed she said yes when asked if it was true that double-vaxxed people were 13 times more likely to catch COVID-19. It also stated that she said yes when asked if the vaccine was dangerous for women who were pregnant or that the vaccine had never been studied properly. Now, if you saw this very official-looking document doing the rounds on your social media, it would be pretty convincing. So even though RMIT found that the document had been falsified and that the professor had, in fact, spoken about how safe and effective the vaccines are, for those who never see the debunking or the follow-up clarifying those statements as untrue, they would be led to believe that vaccines are unsafe and ineffective. And that is just one example. Dr Josh Roos is a political sociologist and senior research fellow in politics and religion at the Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation at Deakin University in Melbourne. His research focuses on the intersection of masculinities, radicalisation and political and religious violent extremism and terrorism. Doctor, we can see from vaccination rates around the country, Australia's as a nation set to hit 70% double-dose target in coming days, those who aren't getting the jab are in the minority. So how is it that their voices are taking up so much of the discussion space right now? Yeah,
1: I think it's a point of difference from the tabloid media in particular. And so what we've seen are some really quite small minorities really having a disproportional impact on the media landscape, often through quite controversial messaging, these protests, which really constitute a tiny percentage of the wider community. But again, it's great media for the front page of Herald Sun or the Daily Mail in particular.
0: Well, can we look at the groups that you're talking about? Those protests in particular, the ones in Melbourne, we heard started out as a bunch of blokes from construction sites and then turned into anti-vaxxers, conspiracy theorists, far-right groups. How are all of these coming together?
1: Yeah, it's important to view what's been going on in Melbourne as part of a, a much broader continuum over the last 18 months. In 2020, when lockdowns first started, there was a small protest movement talking about freedom, you know, often employing American sort of libertarian language about tyranny. These were small groups of several hundred people who would show up in the city and then disperse. They even protested at the shrine or at shopping centres. But what's occurred from there is that group's continued. Every time there's a lockdown, they've re-emerged in public space. And voice their perspectives. What happened more recently was that there was a quite violent protest preceding that trade union protest you're talking about back in July. Victoria Police, I think, considered that one of the more violent protests of the last decade. From there, we've seen primarily younger men, between 25 and 40, even, showing up and actually taking police on physically, forcibly sort of seeking to march through the CBD and, and other areas despite the police presence. And then the Saturday preceding the trade union protest. Only a couple of days prior, there was another quite violent protest, suburbs of Melbourne. So what we saw then was a very different protest on that weekday morning, where some trade unionists were upset that they considered the union to be pushing for mandatory vaccination and to be seen to be supporting it on building sites. They showed up and protested outside the CFMEU. And from there, it only took a matter of minutes, if not less, for the freedom movement protesters to pick up on that. And they are a broad amalgam of right-wing activists and far-right activists, anti-vaxxers, QAnon conspiracy theorists and others to come down and to join in and then start to broadcast that through their own, what they call alternative media outlets. And that grew from a couple of hundred angry trade unionists who were in the minority through to several thousand people. From there, the momentum kicked off.
0: So what's tying them all together? Is it the anti-vax stance that's bringing them together or is it distrust of the government? What is it that gets them on a level playing field?
1: There are a number of core concerns that cross these disparate groups. There's a strong distrust in government. There's a strong alignment with the sort of language that we've seen come out of the US in particular, the libertarian language about standing up to tyranny and freedom and this idea that there's some sort of liberal elite who are controlling the mainstream media, who are basically exploiting these lockdowns to enhance their power. And for some people, that resonates. For people who have been locked down for 18 months, stuck at home, who are seeing this on social media, they may well say, well, no one's listening to me. I feel a little bit disempowered or angry about this. I'm going to go and protest. But there are active groups, in particular the far right and alt-right type actors who are seeking to use this anger and these displays of public dissent to mobilise and to grow their movements. And that's where this is particularly problematic and dangerous.
0: You mentioned there some of the language surrounding these particular groups and protests, and some of it seems to now be appropriated from other groups, minority groups from past historical issues like segregation, apartheid and the Holocaust. We saw an anti-vaxxer take down her social media after posting pictures of her and her family wearing the yellow Stars of David like Jews were forced to do in Germany, why are they appropriating historical racism to now sell their movement?
1: I suppose there's a determination you've got to make in trying to assess this. Are these people deliberately seeking to misrepresent, for example, National Socialism and the fight against fascism? And you would say in groups like the White Rose Society, they're attempting to represent themselves as anti-fascists who are fighting for freedom. But on the other hand, you've got people who are broadly speaking looking for anything they can find in history to relate to what they're doing. For some people who are involved in these movements who aren't necessarily aligned, they see themselves as fighting against a lockdown as you know have been put out of work or angry and feeling alienated and are looking for historic parallels with what they're going through. These are clearly you know, very misguided. need to be called out where they are. But unfortunately, that's the state of public discourse at the moment.
0: So it feels like from a perspective of an Australian consuming media via social media, for example, or through traditional means, that this group is big and strong and vocal and increasing. Just how dangerous is that to us as Australians and where we stand in our democracy? Where does this kind of impact us the most? Just how dangerous is it?
1: We know from the momentum of these groups and observing them online that it's grown from several hundred people to about 15,000 people online in the various forums who are highly active and posting non-stop all day, every day. I mean, much of this is an online movement. They may come together physically, but they're feeding off one another all day, every day, quite late into the night, often all night. So there is that small momentum, but it is a tiny percentage of the community. Where this absolutely is most dangerous is where these narratives are being picked up by mainstream politicians, in particular those on the right, the far right of the Liberal Party. Certain politicians are picking those up, running with them, and seeking to exploit them, publishing them on their web pages, meeting with activists, going to various events, speaking publicly at them, and giving them a sense of legitimacy. Ultimately, what these anti-vaxxers and these far-right groups and that broad amalgam of groups that have emerged are seeking is legitimacy. They want to be seen as standing up for people. They want to be seen as the voice of the people. And so to that extent, when a mainstream politician amplifies their message, that's where it starts to get dicey because you're actually starting to see the mainstream media reporting these movements, messages, you're starting to see them come into people's houses through TV and through social media, and that's where they start to the gain real traction.
0: The world is in a difficult moment of division, but Australians continue to roll up their sleeves despite the barrage of information, misinformation, fears, pressures, and emotions involved. As of yesterday, the ACT was at over 95% first dose for over 16s. New South Wales 92%, Victoria 88%, Tassie 83%, SA 76%, WA 73%, Queensland 72% and the Northern Territory at 70%. All states and territories are predicted to hit the 80% double-dose vaccination target by the end of December. The ACT and New South Wales are already there. But no vaccine is always 100% effective. Some people will experience breakthrough infection. Some will have a reduced antibody response and will need a booster sooner rather than later. Some can't get a vaccine for medical reasons or are still too young to get one. So while the risks to you as a healthy, recently fully vaccinated adult, being in contact with someone who's unvaccinated are very low, there will be vulnerable people in the community who'll have to weigh up whether they re-enter the world with unvaccinated people side by side or stay isolated and stay safe. The choice, as always, is yours. This episode of The Quickie was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Siobhan Moran-McFarlane, with audio production by Ian Camilleri.